Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Andrew Graff. Andrew has a degree in entomology, which is someone who studies insects. However, we aren't going to be talking all about insects today, as Andrew is someone who practices a raw meat diet and has eaten an exclusive raw meat-only diet for the last six months. Andrew, thanks for coming on for an episode for today. Thank you so much for having me on, Gary. Yeah, so we didn't actually get a chance to chat at the recent Carnivory Con, which is a pity, and I only found out more about your way of eating from your tweets afterwards. Um, so I'm just, I had a bad case of FOMO when I saw that, and uh, I definitely wanted to reach out to you. Um, so yeah, if anyone who hasn't seen your Twitter profile, um, you show both video and imagery of how you literally eat only raw meat. And when we're talking raw, we're not even talking a little bit seared, it's raw. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally 100% raw. And it's, some people believe it's faked. It is hilarious on Twitter how many times I've had people they won't accept what's right in front of them. And like people can eat raw meat. I'm clear proof of that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I wanted to have a discussion with you today is to find out why did you go eventually down to raw meat only diets. So um, if you wouldn't mind, just tell people how you ended up maybe on a carnivore diet and eventually on a raw meat diet. Okay, so I'll try to summarize this. <laughs> it's been a long journey, starting with high school. High school, I clocked at around 300 pounds. I was massive. I'm probably going to have stretch marks for the rest of my life, no matter how healthy I get or what I do. And at reaching that size, I finally decided to do something about it. But I did it in every wrong way possible. At first, I thought, oh, I can just exercise until the weight comes off, right? I can do whatever I want so long as I run a bajillion miles, you know. But of course, that doesn't work. You're just slowly killing yourself in a sense. You're not... There's no nutrition in that. You're just degrading away. Like, okay, I'm going to calorie restrict. Well, a classic calorie restriction doesn't work because then you end up being hungry all the time and you binge and your weight just yo-yos over and over again. And it's just, and of course, me having depression already, it's just a roller coaster. You think you're successful and you binge and it shoots off again. It's just this vicious cycle. Anxiety as well. Um, and I think tried things, every fad you could think of at the time. Like there's this thing called... Um, I think it's coined the military diet. Like you wake up in the morning, like ate an egg and a grapefruit or something like that. And that was pretty much every meal. It was that it was highly restrictive calories, but you're still eating something. And then there was just high carb while you're working out. And then um, veganism did that for a month. That was a horrible mistake, especially for my digestive system, which is already bad as it was. That no, no person was meant to shoot that much fiber through their body, at least not intentionally. <laughs> the worst part of it was the beans and the oatmeal. I, I did everything raw. I, people say the classic thing is, oh, you didn't do the raw vegan diet right. But I was basically following the top advice I understood at the time. But after that, I discovered keto. And this is in college time now. And at the time, you know, I'm being athletic for the university. I was their top saber fencer, Olympic saber fencer for like three years. And I was doing okay, but it wasn't really improving in my body, mean body mass, wouldn't really go anywhere. I still had a bunch of things like eczema. I was beginning to develop arthritis in my hands from the fencing as well on my hips too, which was starting to hurt. 
But still, I was able to persist with skill. But something was still wrong, of course. Keto was the first time I was losing weight, but I was getting healthier. It was this paradigm shift. In the past, I was basically losing weight at the expense of my health because it's all I cared about. And that kind of changed my perspective of everything. It's, like, it's a vanity. you got to let go of it at some point. But if you're dead, it doesn't matter how nice you look. <laughs> so with keto, of course, I like to follow things to logical conclusion. I like philosophy. That's a hobby. I like to think. Now, people like think about the surface level of ideas. They don't always have to take it to the final conclusion. They like the initial results of it. But the logic has to go somewhere. So with keto, the way I understood it was the improvements were based around the reduction of carbohydrates. I'm like, well, that's the whole reason why my health's improving, at least for the most part, the principle. What happens when you take it to zero? And I'm like, okay, so type in zero carb on Google. It turns out it's actually a catchphrase for the carnivore diet, which was, I had no clue this existed at the time. So I found that zero carb subreddit. I'm like, there are people that eat only meat? This is insane. <laughs> These people are nuts. You know, I start reading through this, I'm like, but it's basically keto, but the end of keto. I mean, say for like, if you're drinking raw dairy, which I do at times, or a liver, you're getting different types of carbohydrates and sugars, but virtually outside of that, it's nothing. It's just fat and protein. So I'm like, okay, well, there's only one way to find out. I've done everything already. Might as well take the next experiment, right? <laughs> and I spent those first 30 days. That was a suggestion. And this is before things, I, I kind of get into this before it took off, like trending wise. So it was kind of weird seeing it take off while doing it. I was like, this is awkward, but it's working. So I spent the first 30 days. I was in College Station at the time going to AM. I didn't own a vehicle, so I walk everywhere. And I knew I couldn't trust myself with the carbs because, you know, carb addiction. So I made it to where I didn't have access to anything other than meat. I forced it for a whole month. And I made it so hard because I'd have to walk everywhere in order to have access to something I shouldn't eat that it was too discouraging to do so. Because I'd be up in the morning at five, I'd be swimming laps by six at the, the pool. Then you're going to classes, you're going to work. I work in various labs and I do weight training of the day. Then you come after all the classes, then you do fencing for the university to train. And then you walk home and you get home at like 11 o'clock. That was the day for several semesters how that worked out. So I didn't have a choice in the matter. And after 30 days, I walk into HEB. HEB is like the Walmart of South Texas. It's, it's much better in my opinion. Uh, no offense to people walking, working at Walmart, but um, they offer more local stuff. I walk in there and for the first time in my life, I can walk into a store, a grocery store, and none of it mattered except for me. I could walk down the ice cream aisle. There was no appetite, no draw, no nothing. I could smell baked apple pie. I could smell the bakery, all these pleasant aromas, but there was no food association with them whatsoever. You could enjoy and appreciate them without being hungry. And it was just mind blowing. It was like a, a new sense of freedom that I had never had before. And at the same time, while the meat was appetizing, I could walk away and go home without buying anything, knowing that I was going to be fine because whole new relationship with food. And um, of course, with carnivore diet, I was lightly searing stuff in the beginning. I was already mostly a rare kind of guy. And over time, I cooked it less and less. And I noticed I liked it better, less and less. There was something about it, some kind of positive feedback. It wasn't taste. It was a, a sense of well-being and health. 
And I started getting curious, like, why is this? So I started asking around, looking, and from what I've put together, it's because when you destroy food by your cooking, you're actually changing the way your body's going to process it or be able to use it. So first off, if you think about it, when you're using a flame or heat, it's an indiscriminate use of heat or energy. There's nothing specialized about it. It's very, it's very different, say, say, an enzyme inside your body trying to target a specific protein or a specific fat. That's a control process. It's very intentional. But with heat, it's just like a shotgun. It's just to see what happens when we blow it up. Well, when that goes into your body, everything is by it's a chemical recognition. You're actually destroying the maximum yield that you can take from the meat. At the same time, because it was a living organism, those cells still have the ability to self-destruct themselves, apoptosis. They have enzymes of their own. And the bacteria that came with it that was naturally occurring on there was also trying to digest it and they secrete their own enzymes. When you cook it, you destroy all of that and you put all the demand on your body to use all of its resources it wouldn't always necessarily need to use. But on top of that, the yield has been reduced. So you're sapping more out of yourself for taste. And um, it's, it's just a night and day difference. And also you eat less. So when you eat something raw, it's a different kind of taste. You're not tasting it for pleasure, but you're tasting it and getting an actual feedback from your body. And it's not distracted. That's why like you can consume sugar all you want. And you have to really go ham on the sugar before you feel sick necessarily, because you're having an overpowering stimulus that's preventing a feedback to tell you to stop. <laughs> so when you're eating raw meat, you end up eating less because your needs are satisfied and your body can better give a feedback to that. You'll know to stop. It's like it's telling you do not continue with this. Or it's not a conscious thing. It's like, it's like a feeling of uh, satiety, especially with fat. And of course, then I started finding other people doing raw meat, asking them questions. And things they'd tell me were just kind of reflecting what my own experience was. It was more of a validation to that. I just kept on going. And it reminded me, actually, as a kid, I used to cook hamburgers on the grill for the family. And they always told me there can be absolutely no pink. It's dangerous. And I'm like, okay, I'm on a mission. My parents have got me this mission. I got to do this. So anytime there was pink, you know, you got to take the spatula and cut it and take a peek to make sure. The parents see pink. Like, Andrew, you left some pink. Well, if I ever found one that was pink, my solution was to eat it myself, thinking I was like jumping on a grenade from my family. But for some reason, I, I preferred it that way. I liked it. It tasted better. I never understood why back then. But then looking back, like maybe there's more to it than that. So there's a whole lot going on with the raw food versus cooked food. And people can debate it all the time. But it's my stance that you're much better off eating the foods raw in terms of health. And you can dabble for tastes, but at some point you have to choose between those two. It's not always like a mutually exclusive thing. So it sounds like, um, yeah, you, you love experimenting with diets and it's your primary goal I there was, was the weight management. And by mm -hmm. the time you were on Carnivore then, your weight wasn't a particular issue, was it? Or was it still a bit uh, of an still, issue for you? Uh, still pretty husky. I was like 230, 240. Because anything between then and the past, I was yo-yoing. It didn't matter what I was doing. I was just making it worse. And there's no telling what damage I've done in the long run. So, I mean, that's, your guess is as good as mine is what's actually wrong in the long term. So, mm -hmm. And 
so even there, so with that 30 day experiment of, of when you first started carnivore then, uh, mm-hmm. so it sounds like it took it, you, you, when you went, when you went, you went into the grocery store and you smelt that apple pie, that was after a month of being carnivore. Yes. And that's after I was keto for a year and then I did carnivore and even imagine that you're already low carb on keto. You think you're fat adapted. Then you try carnivore and Ooh, the carb, the carb demon really comes out. Because with the keto, there's a thing I call, it's called the keto recipe black hole, in my opinion. Because you set this bar, it's like you can't have any carbs above this limit, but you can have whatever you want so long as it reaches that bar, results in this massive black hole of trying to imitate all the foods you shouldn't be eating. You stare at them all day. You stare at recipes all day. You become obsessed with it because you're chasing what you're restricting and addicted to. And that's all gone now. It's just... And and so, as you said, you you tried raw veganism for a month, and your digestive um, system said, "Yeah, don't do it that." It was already bad. It got much worse. Like, yeah, imagine TMI. But when you go to do what you need to do, it doesn't come out without excruciating pain and the feeling like you're going to implode. Yeah. But what but what was your trigger then uh, that made you think you need to then take your carnivore? cooked meat to raw meats was there something in that process or was there someone on that subreddit or that's that it was a combination this is my observation i was cooking it less and less and like it feels i feel better doing so it's like anytime i cook it more it's more like a drag like you're being slowed down a little bit which even at the time like it's even with it being cooked compared to eating any other way you already feel like a million bucks it's like now you're like a million and five hundred bucks on top of that (laughs) You know, it's like that extra little step. So what was the meat that you started first with raw then? Okay, so I was in a fortunate situation. At Texas A&M, they actually have a meat center that sells poultry, pork, and beef from local farms. And it helps support the academic institution itself that teaches animal science. And they were selling chuck roast at two ninety nine a pound. And they were primal cuts. You could just walk in and walk out with them. <laughs> so I was... Basically picking one a day, it's like three to four pounds. That was my daily food. And because I was already doing OMAD, I was on keto, I was on OMAD for the longest time. I was already used to it because I didn't have time during the day to explain my schedule. There's no way you're going to sit down and eat until you get home. And I just go home and I'd sear it with salt and it was mostly rare. And eventually I just stopped. I still remember the first time I went full raw on that. Because I was also doing ground beef. Ground beef, I used to put in a bowl after I get like two pounds of it. And you'd put the pan on super high, so you'd sear it for like a minute or two on each side. But the inside is so cool and cold and raw. That tasted really good. But the best part wasn't the crisp on the outside. It was the middle. I didn't like, I don't understand. Like, why am I still cooking it if it's the other way around? And um, yeah, from there, the first time I went full raw, one of those chuck roasts, like on anything, I was working in an office. Imagine an office so small, the person you're working with, you're back to back. And there's a door. That's the whole office. I was um, I was 3D modeling bullet ants from CAT scans, helping um, a professor on a project. But that day he wasn't in the office, so I brought in this Chuck Rose Primal. You see, no one comes to this office, so I, I can be safe in doing this. Like, you know what? I'm going to eat this thing raw with my bare hands. We're just going to get this over with. And I'll never forget that experience because I knew every time I looked up, like I hope no one opens that door and walks in here because they're going to see an animal <laughs> barehanded, like. Because Chuck can be a little tough. I'm just eating, pulling it apart. 
and life changed forever after that. Okay, so that that Chuck um, gave you the confidence that actually I'm good because did you, you know, a lot. The first question a lot of people ask after they've asked why is just the concern factor of like, are you not concerned for your health? Because as you um, as you mentioned earlier with your family, saying you must always cook it so that it's not uh, raw yeah, inside. So- I'm going to start with, I think we live in an overly hygienic society. And because of that, we are missing out on immune benefits, things that we were exposed to all the time, which are meant to be normal. And also the way that we eat can inhibit our immune system. It starts with the gut. So people eating a a high plant-based diet all the time, or eating a lot of carbs, different things other than, say, meat, they're raising the pH of their stomach acid. And when you eat that in combination with foods that have been tainted, which typically are plants like lettuce and other things you see with salmonella all the time, because your stomach acid, the pH isn't as low as it should be, more things get through. That's why people get the food poisoning. You allowed a, a bacterial load that shouldn't have survived, and then it just kind of antagonistically hits everything down there. That's why you get food poisoning and stuff like that. If your stomach acid and your digestive system is working as it should, there is no issue with eating the raw food, period. A human stomach acid, the pH should be between, I think it's like 1.5 and 3. That is incredibly low. That's as low as the detrivores, the animals that feed on decaying material, dead animals. And they have to have that because they're feeding on carcasses that are also being metabolized by other bacteria and it protects them, but also gives them the benefit of foods already being digested by the other microorganisms. With that in place, that should be an evidence too that we were meant to handle those kinds of things. Whereas a lot of the carnivores, like between two and three, or sometimes more than higher than three on the pH scale, but the human goes all the way down to almost 1.5 and even lower sometimes. And there's a good reason for that. And that's, the, that's what gives you the confidence that you're not going to contract something uh, particularly yes. nasty from the raw meat. I'm not saying it's impossible. Like there are food handling issues and the problem of antibiotics. If you're going for conventional meats, always keep in mind that they're pumping those animals full of antibiotics. Now, of course, their intention is to protect the cow from infection, but whatever survives is now a much more efficient and hardened microorganism, not natural to you and me. So what would be dealt with normally may not necessarily end that way. So I myself, I eat only grass-fed and finished beef. Now that I switch but most part, you should be fine with everything. first people really, it's, it's very There was a microbiologist, he works for the USDA in food inspection. And he, um, he, he's in one of these groups talking about raw meat. And he's like, I work for these people. I know what goes in all this stuff. I will tell you, I eat raw meat all the time. And I will tell you it's perfectly safe, whether it's conventional or grass-fed. I was like, well, that just came from someone with a very specific discipline and a very specific place that happens to be exactly who would know better, <laughs> not just some general person. So I took those words rather seriously. And of course, I started eating that way. I'm like, I'm still alive. There's no food poisoning. I feel better. The evidence is not in the favor of the mainstream. So, Okay. And um, 
So that's interesting how you you mentioned then that you do see a, a benefit to eating grass finished or pasture raised uh, meat because yeah, of, I feel better. Yeah, for sure. It's like uh, not that you feel terrible eating conventional. It's like a imagine you're dragging a rock around. It's maybe a couple pounds. You eat the conventional, and the weight of it increases by like a couple pounds. Like you notice, like something ain't perfect about what you ate, but it's not really hurting you necessarily. Mm-hmm. And thing is, I'm always annoyed by this because the cost difference. I went a month on grass fed to see what it was like. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna cut back on cost and I'll go back to conventional. And I couldn't do it because when I tried to add the conventional back in, it just it just seemed like such a drag. I was like. Something not right about this. I just went back to grass-fed. I've been that way ever since. So when you said something not right, was it more just a taste factor or a feeling factor? Like a feeling factor. Not optimal is a way of saying it, I think. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with the food. It's just not as... Of course, if you know the difference between grass-fed and conventional beef, the grass-fed is going to have a much higher chance of having a higher nutritional profile because it's feeding off of the grasses and not grains. And because of that... And end up like in the fat and the protein of the animal, which another reason why like it's like a trade-off. So you, if you if you grain feed primarily a cow, you get massive fat stores on a cow. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But people like that. It's a fatty beef, but that fat isn't full of the nutrients that be getting out of the grass and the ground and other foliage that they're supposed to be foraging for on the pasture. Whereas a, a totally grass-fed, grass-finished cow you have a slightly beige to yellow fat because the carotenoids are actually being uptaked into the fat. And you can see that. Of course, it won't be super, super yellow unless the animal has been around for many, many years. And of course, to keep production going, people are going to slaughter at a younger age. So you won't see that super yellow color very often, even with a grass-fed and finished cow. And then you'll see the color also in the meat itself, the redness factor. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, so... When it comes to storage, how do you handle buying enough meat and storing the meat? Do you eat, do you go with a freezer route? Do you not freeze your meat? I see. I would. I wish I could have access to fresh, but it's just not always possible. That whoever's providing it would have to have an operation where they can afford to just leave fresh meat out for people to buy. It's grass-fed and finished. So I source almost all of my beef, at least ninety-nine percent of it, from Two S Ranch. Have you ever heard of Bart Simmons? He runs a really great. Uh, Bart, he has 2S Ranch, it's up in Palo Pinto, and he has a store in the Dallas area, it's like SH Richardson, and they provide him already frozen. So most of my stuff is long-term frozen, and that's how I've been doing things. I just keep it frozen, I deep freeze when I need it, I just thaw it out and eat it. I'll let it sit out. It's in a a freeze-dry, but airtight bag, of course. And if you want to, you can just put them in a sink with lukewarm water, it'll thaw out, and it'll be like room temperature when you eat it. I found that raw meat is better around body temperature. And I can imagine there's a bajillion reasons why that is. I just can't tell you a straight answer, but it's close to body temperature like it is from an animal. So imagine the experience of, you know, uh, back then with a hunt and eating an animal after it's been slaughtered and people might want to imitate that, which is the reason why I think people cook things to begin with. It's not because of pathogens. They didn't know they're pathogens, but to, imitate that that heat that sensation that experience cooking would be a good way to do that or to make it go further or to preserve over time but yeah i just let things sit out um room temperature eat it as is and you just have it frozen for long term if i had options to get fresh all the time i would choose that 
Mm-hmm. And do you like the fatty cuts of meat? So you, you don't just have a, a lean cut? Nope. Got to have that fat. <laughs> and how do you find it then? What, what was that like trying to eat uncooked fat at that amount? That's fine. See, people have issues with high fat when they cook it, in my opinion, because they're rendering it. They're denaturing the fat. At When the body gets in at a certain rate, it's like, whoa, stop. <laughs> because it's been denatured. It doesn't know what to do with it. It's like eating an oil. And your body wants to shoot that out the other side as fast as it can. Or <laughs> TMI there. But um, when it comes to the the raw fat, it's like a, a chewy gelatin or sometimes like a chalk at times. And it's there's no problem. I can sit and eat like a, a bowl of solid beef fat that's been pulled from like from the kit the sweat and the kidneys. And it's absolutely no problem. Period. But if you try to fry that and then drink the, the grease along with it, the rendered fat, or even slowly cook it, there's only so much your body's gonna take before it's just like, nope, stop that. I think that's why a lot of people in the beginning of carnivore are wondering why they have the runs. It's probably because they're cooking all that meat and taking the drippings along with it. Okay. Because they're being told to get the fat in and they think that's how they get the fat. I'm like, no, just eat it raw. (laughs) It's so, it makes life so easy. Imagine this. I have literally almost completely eliminated the concept of cooking. (laughs) It's gone. It's irrelevant. Kitchens are irrelevant. For the most part, pots, well, pans, or I'm just thinking offhand. Could you imagine where most people, if they are office workers and they go out for lunch to a sandwich shop, you would go to your local butcher and, and go pick up, or just bring it with me from home. I already have it. Yeah, there's no prep required. And then, but yeah, just because. Uh, do you still not? Put, I had one comment from someone who was who was asking. Um, a knife and a fork. Do you still prefer to you just I'll use, use your them hands? When I think it's useful or when people are around <laughs> like yeah for the most part i'll use a fork like a spoon for ground beef um if it's a really thick cut i might use a knife but for the most part you can use your hands to pull that stuff apart but of course some people want to feel civilized so i use a fork and a knife uh-huh. civil. <laughs> <laughs> and and it makes less of a mess to be honest so and and how do you find like because the problem is if you get a really thick cut of meat it it's hard so you need to cut through that and especially if it's raw like you would cook it to try and make it a bit softer to cut it a bit easier so do you prefer sometimes cooking actually makes it less tender makes it dry out and really tough whereas a fresh cut of raw meat like say i had chuck roast i could push my thumb through the middle of it and rip it in two just like that and then you just bite pieces off of it and just also, you got to remember there are different, the muscles line up differently. As you continue to eat like that, you become more and more familiar with how the muscles, the grain is, where they are, what, what they do, and where they're weak at, and where the connective tissue is as well. So it's also a learning process to see what's the best way to eat the food raw. Mm-hmm. And it's still predominantly beef then. You haven't moved into other animals, or have you? I never really did chicken because after starting carnivore, it was so lean. I didn't care for it anymore. So I, I can't, I've never tried it raw. I never bothered after going all raw to touch chicken. This beef was just so great. Um, I haven't done pork on carnivore. In the past, pork has always given me a problem. I don't know why. It could be that this the pork, the way it was raised, became a terrible quality food. As I, I can't say I've ever had you know good quality pork, so I can't rule that out. 
I've eaten raw salmon. I eat raw tuna when they're available. Uh, raw tuna is like a, a deep purple red color. I've seen a tuna steak when it's uncooked, and it's like a, a thick gelatin almost. It's practically no fat on it. Though. Whereas salmon, if you get it wild caught, don't eat farmed fish. It's a bad idea. Um, I have a story about that later. Um, but it'd be like a bright orange to red color. And it's a very fatty fish, and you can eat the skin and all. Just buy the fillet, cut it, and eat it. So it's very good. Yeah, and I mean, talking about fish, I, I mean, personally, I love sashimi, which is raw fish. Uh, sushi. I love sushi before I went carnivore. And sashimi, as great as, as great as it is, is a very expensive alternative to actually just buying the fillet and eating it yourself. <laughs> yeah, but but it's that concept again of yeah, you you don't see a problem of eating raw fish, um, and mm-hmm. and fresh raw fish is seen as actually very healthy for you. You're just taking it into the like into beef too, and but even in the beef world, you get steak tartare and you even get carpaccio. And carpaccio is raw meat, just very thinly sliced, and it's a it's a delicacy. So yeah, you're but yeah, you're just taking big chunks of meat and eating it, which was what visually also makes this look so dramatic, it's so vicious and inhuman. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, sharing some of your pictures, you shared it where you're eating meat off the bone too. So you have a big bone, and there you are, like getting bits off right by the bone still. I still remember that day. It was Dallas Farmer's Market. Like, I'm going to get a ribeye. And all those people who say, oh, he doesn't eat raw meat. I'm going to prove them wrong. That's the whole reason why I put that up there, just as a joke. And because I figured it was like a shock. Like, okay, this is who he is now. We get it. <laughs> uh, Anytime you like debates on Twitter, you can share that video and people like run away. <laughs> But I can, like, oh, no, I'm surprised my, my profile hasn't been flagged yet for something, for any silly reason. Yeah, so I've been fortunate in that regard. Well, maybe once you start doing podcasts like this, yeah, you might unfortunately get flagged. Yeah. <laughs> so now that you've been raw for half a year, ha- have you noticed any other health changes in yourself? So you've noticed a, a little bit more of the weight loss, but you mentioned earlier about the joint pain in your hands, uh, part, uh, skin the condition. The majority of the changes happened upon the transition into carnivore, and they just they just haven't reversed themselves. Uh, the biggest thing with raw is you're, you're eating less, you feel better on less. The energy, of course, is consistent with carnivore, but by eating only raw, I'm not seasoning anything, I'm not putting any salt. Salt is a problem. And not in a sense that people would think I'm saying. You need salt, but it doesn't mean you need to add salt to the food you're already eating to have the salt. One of the common um, advisories for people going to keto and carnivore is to salt everything to overcome keto flu, all those symptoms of a electrolyte imbalance. The problem with doing that is only really meant to be a comfort until you're adjusted. Instead, people douse their stuff in salt like I did and wondered why you prolonged still had cramps and other problems. It's because you're creating an imbalance and you keep making the imbalance over time. And I got to a point where I was putting so much salt on my food that I couldn't taste it. That was my wake-up call. Imagine becoming salt all over that chuck roast is lightly seared, and you go to bite into it, you can't taste the salt, and you know there are copious amounts. I'm just like, okay, this has to stop right now. And strangely enough, after a week of not doing that and being all raw, all the electrolyte issues went away. The meat itself has the electrolyte ratios you need because it's, it's flesh. When that thing was alive, it was using the same exact chemical functions to operate that musculature. So by eating it, you're basically eating 
the closest thing to what's already in your body. When you cook it, you're changing the structure. You might be losing electrolytes in the drippings as well, and you're dehydrating it at the same time. So you're creating an imbalance. Then you try to make up for it by adding salt. The thing is too much salt lowers potassium, affects magnesium, and all that stuff. It gets it all out of balance. But just eating raw and nothing else, that whole world of supplementation for that just goes away. And it's, it's a nice little freedom to have there. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a controversial point about not adding salt. I can imagine something. I know, I know. It's, uh, I have other things that are also very controversial when it comes to insects. So <laughs> just as a, a point of evidence, Imagine my workout schedule, 30 minutes to an hour of laps in a pool every morning, weight training as hard as you can, doing a five-day split, as heavy as you can go at noon, and then after all your classes and going to work two jobs in a university, doing fencing from 7 to 10 o'clock or even 11 o'clock at night with no salt, eating only raw meat, and there are absolutely no hindrances in my athletic ability. In fact, I became more resistant to sweating. It took a lot more to sweat. I never twitched, and my endurance went. Okay. So if that can be done with no salt, <laughs> I think that says a lot, especially. So who do you think would benefit transitioning? Because there's going to be a lot of people who are now eating an all-meat diet or carnivore diet, but they're cooking their food. Do you think there's a certain population base or certain type of person that would benefit going onto raw? I think generally anyone would, but maybe particularly people who have issues with digestion and enzymes, a lack of them, because you're cooking your food and you're destroying what nature is trying to help you with. And by not cooking it, it may be a relief to you as well. There's actually a, um, there's a book that kind of put forth a, a theory about enzymes. A person recently reviewed it and put it up on a website, but it basically talks about the chemical changes in food, whether it's raw food for meat or plants or whatever, and the cascading effects of not having the enzyme reinforcements from the outside and taxing your body with it. Because it's a whole line of systems. It starts with your mouth, you have saliva, you're, you're stimulating stomach acid. The stomach acid then stimulates the pancreas and the liver because the pH goes down to a certain point to release you know, bile and everything into the duodenum. And if this system is not working as it should or being reinforced as it should, you end up getting undigested food in your body. And that over time can lead to like things like leaky gut and dysbiosis of bacteria and stuff like that. So if you're overtaxing that system and leads to that, it might be of a relief to perhaps take the load off. Even though technically carnivores are taking a massive load off if you're not eating all those fibrous plants and fruits and everything too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean, at the carnivory con, that's something that came up was intestinal permeability and the healing effect of going on an all-meat diet on your intestines, basically the, the tubes in you. Um, what about organ meats? Are you into eating organ meats yeah, too? I, um, I primarily, liver is like the mainstay. I've had kidney once, did not like the taste of it. Sorry to anyone who likes kidney, even raw. If I don't like it raw, I'm probably never going to like it cooked, even if I tried. It's just something about that. It wasn't bad. Like eating it didn't tell me something was wrong with it. It's just I don't appreciate the taste it provides. And um, I haven't had brain. I really wish I had access to it. I have not had um, 
Uh, what's another common organ people? Oh, I've had hearts. So beef heart's pretty good. It's very, very lean tissue. Uh, the fat on it is usually very hard and like uh, finger-like. But it has a, a taste that's different from the other fats. I can't, of course, I can't describe it. One of the things you have to try it to know what you're talking about. But it's, it's very good. It's like eating sirloin tips. It's so lean. You just dice it up in little cubes. Um, I've had thymus glands. Of course, those, those are only there when, when it's a calf that kind of disappears. They get older. And it's basically like a big blob of fat. Mm-hmm. And that's been my experience. The organs are all very good. Um, my opinion, you shouldn't eat organ meats off of conventional raised animals because depending on how the animal is raised, keep in mind, the liver is a massive, um, basically a processing center for the body. It does a lot of functions for the blood. It clears things out. If you're raising an animal in a way that makes it sick, affects its health, you're taxing that liver. That liver is eventually going to be on someone's plate. Whatever accumulates in that liver is now going to whoever's eating. If you're eating a liver from a, a well-raised animal that was raised as it should be according to its biology, not interfered with all kinds of artificial nonsense, then that liver is going to be relatively healthy and it tastes dramatically differently. I could not stomach conventional liver. It was the most bitter thing I ever put in my mouth. And I tried eating it raw. I tried eating it cooked. Nothing changed it. Then one day I had, uh, it was frozen previously, but it was grass-fed liver. It tasted like candy. I was like, what in the world? I was told this stuff is disgusting. And how, how, how is this, how has this changed? And for the first time in my life, I had fresh raw liver was at that raw bar at Boulder. Uh, Eva had brought that in and I tried a piece. It's like you got uh, negatively, you got punched in the face with a bunch of happiness. I had, I never thought anything would top what I already had. And it was just amazing the difference of it being fresh, never frozen, never interfered with, that it made. It's like, I'm wide awake. I thought I was happy before. Now it just went up to a whole new level of, of well-being. It just felt fantastic. So that's my advice on organ meats. Try to source them from grass-fed and finished cows. They're much higher quality. The nutrients will be better. And you won't have that, uh, that taste of a very sick animal in your mouth. So maybe that's the reason why also some people struggle with organ meats because it yes, is a taste factor. Oh, it's supposed to taste like. For instance, of course, this is my opinion, conventional meat tastes bland. People season it for a reason because they don't know what it's supposed to taste like. They've probably not been raised on a ranch or a farm where they had access to a slaughtered cow amongst the family or just family just chose to buy grass-fed and finished meat. All they know is that bland conventional market meat. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a compensation there because like some people would be like, oh my God, what do you mean? You don't season your meat. Where's the flavor? I'm like it's there. It's just not that one specifically. Yeah. <laughs> you got to raise it differently. And another point you uh, brought up earlier that was interesting was that you found that you don't eat as much. So when you're, you know, go, being at the carnival conference too, you're, you're here, certain individuals will eat pounds and pounds of cooked meat. Mm-hmm. But I used to that guy. <laughs> but you, yeah, and so that's why I found it interesting that your, your satiety, what you were talking about earlier, where you, you don't have that trigger in your brain to turn off eating, but you mm-hmm. got that back going raw. Yeah, so when I was doing cooked carnivore, remember, this is just slightly searing. Like, there's maybe this much around the edge of the entire chuck roast that was cooked. I could put away four to five pounds on average in a day. There was a time I went over six. Never did that again, though. I was like Dr. Sean Baker level shoving stuff away. 
<laughs> but on raw, it's maybe one to two pounds a day. Because beyond that, it's like, you're not hungry, dude. Stop. <laughs> Your body, stop it. And you have no reason to eat. And that's the great thing is you're always satisfied. There is no, like on a carb driven diet, you're always looking for your next meal. You're driven by this addiction to satisfy. And with me, it's like, I don't want to eat for two days. That's perfectly fine. There's nothing getting in my way. I'm not going to die. It's perfectly normal. Fasting becomes significantly easier on a carnivore diet, especially with raw, because you're just always satisfied. There's no psychological hindrance to tell you to break the fast. Yeah, so I, I do find that very interesting because there's going to be a subset of people who who do struggle with that trigger, and carnivore itself mm -hmm. still isn't e even dealing with that. So this is where again, hey, maybe it's worth an experiment um, to even consider going the raw route if you've got that issue. Yeah. That reminds me of speaking about the whole not blocking your satiety signals. The carnivore diet itself is basically the ultimate elimination diet. It's like you know, with your body, we've been treating it all these years. There are things that you're doing wrong. You've been hurting yourself with. You may not even notice anymore. And when you eliminate everything down to a baseline and you do any attempt to bring them back, it's like you fixed a radar. It's no longer clouded anymore. Your body will tell you when something is wrong because now you've had it gone for so long, you're going to feel the full force of the feedback. And that makes it so great. But at the same time, it's like a double-edged sword. There are things that you really want back in your life that you know you shouldn't have them, but now your body's like, no, I said no. <laughs> it's not coming back. And you don't want to have that experience ever again. But to me, of course, I think it's a blessing. Some people think, oh, no, I can't have this and that anymore. Well, there's a reason why you shouldn't have it. And now you have the, the feedback from your body to tell you no. Yeah, because that's, that's going to definitely be an argument for some individuals is that you're depriving yourself um, yeah, by, by limiting yourself. yourself it's a matter of, it's a very subjective statement. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, some people want pleasure. Some people want health. Some people want both. My personal opinion is you should choose your health over everything first. And that does not mean that healthy things are not pleasurable. People think it's this or that. My opinion, no, I eat raw meat. There is a beautiful taste to it. There is a beautiful satisfaction to it. I'm not missing out on anything at all. And it's just, you have to be in that position to know that. From the perspective of someone who's never done it, all they know is what they have. Mm -hmm. And how would you find the social situation now? So uh, would you be able to go to your family home and sit down and have dinner with your family? Yes. It's, of course, going to restaurants doesn't work out so well. I usually just go to chat, which is interesting because, you know, so much of our culture, it's like unless there is food, there is no social convention. There is no going out. Everything is surrounded by food. And by not having that in my life, it's changed how I approach everything. Because now I'm like, hey, I can talk to people without food being the starter. <laughs> you can go over to someone's house and enjoy quality time with them at an event without having to cook something. Food doesn't have to be there. It just needs to be two or more people having a great conversation or an activity. Yeah. And when it goes to like, course restaurants, I don't, I don't eat out. There's no reason to eat out. I can't trust what they're serving me as what I would source. But of course, I would join people for the conversation. I want to spend time with them. I'm not there to eat. I'm there to spend time with them. I think some people lose sight of that. A lot of people will go to all these things because of the benefit of the food and the pleasure and the comfort. But then you forget the whole reason you should even be there is because of the people you want to spend time with. So that's it. Yeah, that's it. 
Yeah, it's definitely interesting then what this Some people is that might bother their conscience a little bit and then they go, wait a second. But if you really think about it, it does alter your motives in the background in very tiny ways you may not detect. And what was the fish story that you alluded to earlier? Oh, so I have been eating salmon like my whole life. I used to live in Alaska. Um, so I was already used to fish and I've been in Texas for most of my life. You get farmed salmon all the time from Walmart. It's always there. I never had a problem with it. It wasn't until I started eating the wild salmon when I was on carnivore that when I tried to go back to farm salmon because it costs, that I felt sick from it. I was like, it's not like a, you know, like a bacterial you're sick. It's a something in it inherently wrong. And as it turns out, with farmed fish, they're feeding in artificial feeds in an enclosed space. It's not growing and maturing like it would in the wild and eating a natural diet. And that's going to have effects on the nutritional quality of the fish. And I just can't go back. The radar works. <laughs> it's like, nope, sorry, I can't do that. So you've got better spidey senses now when it comes to, to yes. meat. Which is funny because I do entomology. <laughs> I was thinking more like ant senses. Ants are my favorite group of insects. And talking about insects, we didn't touch on that topic of insect protein. What are your thoughts on that? Um, it's definitely a source of animal protein. I personally don't enjoy the concept of entomophagy. I, I attribute just being in a country where it's not really considered a food source. It kind of makes you revolt when you look at it. But in other countries and cultures, they've been doing that for quite some time, much longer than we've even been around. Several generations of hundreds of thousands of years. So I'm not going to knock it. I'm not saying you can't do that. But my personal opinion, I just I wouldn't do it myself. Yeah. But insects... Their populations outdo anything else on Earth. They are the biggest biomass on this planet. Without them, there is no Earth. There is no humans. There are no crops that plant-based people want to eat. It's, it all goes away. And, and we haven't even discovered the half of them yet, species-wise. It will never end the search for every species of insect out there. Well, people listening to this are, are going to maybe have a little chuckle thinking that someone who loves to eat meat raw off the bone doesn't want to eat raw insects, like just go and chop on like, them. Dude, where, where, where's the cojones? Where's the cougars? And I guess when I went to go study insects, it's because I love the life of it. I love the diversity of it, the things I get to see. I don't study them and then want to eat what I study. <laughs> I just find it like a strange paradigm that isn't quite fit with each other. Yeah, so there's compassion there still. Yes, it is. So for those wondering, just because I eat raw meat does not mean that I don't care for living things. It's quite the opposite. Being on a carnivore diet has taught me a whole new respect for the life that sustains me. I don't think people outside of this kind of understand. They think, oh, you're eating meat. You hate what you're eating. Like, no, 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 no. I understand what was necessary to bring life to me, and I'm going to use it to the best of my ability. I'm going to make sure that that animal is raised correctly. Now, I care significantly more about how the animal is treated, where it comes from, and how it's processed. I care about whether it's completely used and utilized and not wasted, because that's a, sac a sacrifice is being made right there, whether the animal wanted it or not. And you better respect that. At the same time, I don't hate plants just because I don't eat them, but I have a respect for them because I know what they can do. And I think people need to relearn that. People have forgotten what plants are capable of to defend themselves, and they treat them like an everyday food that they should be eating. And they don't know they're making themselves sick. They don't know any better. And they really need to change that. 
Yeah, and that's definitely a, a that was the big topic at the Carnival Conference to educate people about uh, the protective mechanisms. Naturally. I wish there was that there's so much. Like next conference, I'm probably going to be doing a talk as an entomologist perspective. But a lot of things that guy mentioned up there are things that I would be discussing. And I love that he brought up the term biosimilarity because so many times people are like, oh, it's an insect, it's beneath me. Whatever happens to it does not affect me. Like, oh, you have no idea. <laughs> You know, these plant toxins, because there's such a similarity in the functions of the cells that they do the same mode of action on you. It just takes a different dose. And just because it doesn't kill you outright does not mean that something is not happening. People are like, oh, it didn't kill me now. It must be great. It's a cumulative effect. That, that plant has a very specific purpose, of course, not consciously in mind, but it's there to inhibit its being predated on, whether it's a big herbivore another insect, a human being, it's going to attack in the best way it can based on the evolutionary adaptations over time. And entomology, so it's, it's practically impossible to get an education as entomologists and not learn about the interactions between insects and plants because of agriculture. Agriculture is arguably the largest part of entomology when it comes to profit. Therefore, almost all the research around it for entomology has to do with agriculture, pollination, growing crops. Because the game is, the farmer has a crop, they want to make a profit off of it. If insects damage enough of it, they cannot make a profit off of it. So you're trying to avoid someone as the economic level of injury. So they got to figure out how much they need to control for, while at the same time, not cost them more than to sell the crop. And there's all kinds of strategies being used. Um, integrated pest management is just levels of ways to control. And pesticides are always meant to be the last resort. First, you're trying to control the environment. So you try to eliminate ways for that insect to be able to harbor there. Then you try to do biological control. You find natural predators, things like that. But ultimately, you end up up the line to a pesticide. And those pesticides, the ones that we use, are just artificial versions of the plant chemicals themselves. We just synthesize them in a lab. They have the same mode of action. They're just on an industrial scale. So even they, they know better. They should know better. And those things end up in our food already, and we're already ingesting those pesticides. And when it comes to insects, of course, they're super lethal. Um, there's a variety of ways of doing that. So an obvious one would be like a neurotoxin. So if you ever like sprayed a raid can on, on a cockroach, it basically spasms to death. Now, there's a reason why. It's because it's a neurotoxin. Pyrethrins are just pyrethrins. Sorry, pyrethrins come from the chrysanthemum plant. They, they attack the nerves, the synapses, the sodium channels. And the thing is, that operates the same way in our body. That's why if you drank a bunch of that, you'd, you'd spaz out. Now, because of this, uh, there's a word I like to bring up that no one wants me to mention because they love it a lot. It's called caffeine. Caffeine is a neurotoxin. It is an insecticide that you find in a couple of plants, most notably coffee. The purpose of it is to make the insect spasm to death because it, they affect the regulation of the nerves. So it's very similar to a molecule known as adenosine. Adenosine helps regulate the firing of the nerves. Well, when you replace it without the benefit, you increase that activity in the nerves and the synapses, which of course in a human body, which is much more complex than an insect, this sets off a bunch of different events, such as adrenaline and changing basically the chemistry of how your body is using neurological function and hormones in response to it. And over time, that leads to changes in addiction. It damages the nerves. That's why people with arthritis are told not to drink coffee. It's because the damage is already there. 
but you'd think to tell them don't drink the coffee to begin with, you wouldn't be here like this. And it can wear out your adrenals over time. People are like, oh, I drink coffee all the time. I feel great. Yeah, because of the adrenaline spike. The reason you're wide awake is because your body's under attack and you're doing it to yourself. Now, some people may be able to tolerate that toxic load better than others, but I don't see any reason why to do it to yourself. It's like drinking a poison just to be awake when you could live a life without the poison and be even more awake than you ever were in your life. It's, it's unfortunate. And I, I like to talk about it because, like I said, people are very resistant, especially even on the corner. took the world nutrition. You blew it all the way, but you look at me and you go, don't you dare question my coffee. <laughs> like, what, what more <laughs> are you going to be resistant to or, or surprised by yeah, exactly. at that point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the, that's usually one of the big uh, things in a convo. Do you mean I have to give up coffee and tea? <laughs> yeah. So, of course, when they talk like that, it may seem a bit rude. I'm like, spoken like a true addict. Well, you're talking exactly as someone would if they're addicted to the substance that's hurting them. They just don't know any better. Mm. And that's just how it works. Addiction, it's modified your brain, the way you think, and it's a fight. You have to want it. You have to choose whether you want to walk away from that. And it's not easy. Like the whole carb thing, that was a that was a nightmare. I never started coffee, so I can't sit here and tell you that I've been through that withdrawal. I can only imagine it's pretty, pretty tough compared to I mean, based on what people tell me. Because my advice is on anything is go cold turkey. You need to just rip it out of your life and take what's coming to you. But not everyone looks at that and goes, oh, I can do that. They go, no, I got to I gotta wean off of it. But sometimes weaning off of it is a, a lifelong weaning that never really ends up being a removal. So you have to really want it. Of course, you have to prove to yourself that it's worth it. And usually people quit when those withdrawals happen because they think that's, that's their life now. But that's, that's just temporary. You have to change the damage that was done. It doesn't happen overnight. So, Andrew, we're coming up to our time here. What are, If anyone wants to either keep in touch with you, follow you, what you're up to, um, is there a particular social media uh, place or somewhere that you would recommend that people do that? Okay, so I'm most active on Twitter. My hashtag is CarnivoreAntMan because obviously Ant-Man is taken by a copyright uh, person. <laughs> And I'm known as the carnivorous entomologist. So you can search either one of those. You'll find me. My profile pic is me sitting in a chair with my fencing gear on. It's kind of hard to miss. On Facebook, I'm just Andrew Graff. Um, same picture, I think, as well. Or it's the one of me eating raw meat. I'm not on Facebook as much as I used to, but I'm active in raw groups and meat groups from time to time. And other than that, I mean, I don't have much presence anywhere else. You can find me on podcasts. So I've been on the carnivore cast. Um, I've been on Carnival's YouTube channel uh, talking with Doug Wright about raw meat and fermented foods. And most recently, I was on the Urban Cowboy podcast, which is hosted by Bart Simmons and his son, Andrew Simmons. And um, possibly in the next week, because I talked to Dr. Baker when I was at um, Carnivore Con, he wants to have me on for the his podcast as well. So I don't know when that would get out or what time we have scheduled yet. Sure. But yeah, I can definitely uh, see a lot of people wanting to hear more about your experience and, you know, ask even more questions that I've probably asked today. So, but overall, I just want to say again, thank you so much for sharing your time and sharing your, your story. It's been fascinating to listen to. I was glad to answer questions and talk and thank you so much for having me on Gary. Yeah.